was a, a very unusual situation and a different situation to what you normally find as the outcome of these sorts of capital raising. So we do need to enter into a lot of reflection on this one, Senator, I agree, um, uh, and learn lessons, and we most certainly will. We do always when cases don't go as we expect. Australia's top antitrust official, Rod Sims, introspective but not apologetic after the collapse of the criminal cartel prosecution of Citigroup, Deutsche Bank and a handful of current and former executives. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast. James Paniki with you, and we'll have more on what went wrong with that high-profile banking prosecution three and a half years after it began. Laurel Henning is in Sydney, ready to walk us through these developments, and we'll be crossing to her in just over 10 minutes from now. First up, though, to the UK, where the competition enforcer is facing a predicament that would be familiar to officials in other jurisdictions as well, how to manage big tech. What's particular about the UK, though, is that the country's antitrust watchdog, the Competition and Markets Authority, is in a bind. There's uncertainty over whether the CMA should wait for its new digital markets unit to be fully empowered or whether it should go after digital platforms with the tools currently at its disposal. It's a tricky conversation with a political dimension to it as well. Luckily for us, our London-based senior correspondent Victoria Ibitoye has written a piece of analysis on this very issue, and she joins me right now. So, um, Victoria, to start with, tell me more about the Digital Markets Unit uh, and also something about the challenges that the CMA is now facing. Yeah, so the um, the Digital Markets Unit is um, a pro-competitive regulator that the uh, that is about to be housed within the CMA, um, the UK Competition Authority. Um, but the challenge at the moment the CMA is facing is that it just it still doesn't have the legal powers that it needs to make it fully effective. Um, so this regulator is designed to regulate um, tech companies. Um, and it was floated by the CMA after its digital advertising market study way back in 2020. Um, and that was a study that found Google and Meta have substantial market power um, and uh, they dominate digital advertising in a way that was harmful uh, to consumers. So essentially, the, um, the the challenge now, right now, is that since last April, this, uh, this unit, this regulator, um, was set up within the CMA, um, in shadow form, um, but the powers that it needs to be fully effective and up and running just haven't arrived yet, and the delay is uh, is, is sort of causing a lot of people to criticise uh, the decision the CMA is currently taken. Now, Victoria, just quickly help me uh, to understand why it is that the CMA uh, hasn't necessarily focused on big tech up until now. Is that the result of Brexit, or are there some other reasons? Yeah, so the CMA has actually always um, actually been very, very vocal about big tech um, and digital issues. But but sort of, I think the UK side of things, there's been a lot of studies and there's been a lot of research, but not a lot of action. And in a way, the Digital Markets Unit was sort of supposed to be the first uh, big um, change towards actually, you know, putting some of that research into action, um, but it just hasn't hasn't happened yet. So I would say the CMA has actually always, um, in the past, I'd say since 2019, when we saw the Furman Review, has been really active in the discussion about um, 
how competition authorities have been a little bit asleep at the wheel um, when it comes to big tech. Um, but now with the delay in setting up this DMU, which, you know, once effective would be amazing, it would allow the CMA to um, impose codes of conducts on um, tech companies, um, impose large penalties, uh, call in certain deals. The delay in getting that up and running has meant, um, you know, that the this, yeah, there's not, it, it looks from the outside looking in that the CMA is not doing enough. Mm. And what's the risk of the legislation not arriving in time and the CMA having to instead tackle digital markets via its existing powers? Is that a yeah, it is a feasible option. Um, and I guess the risk now is that essentially these problems that the CMA identified way back in 2020 with the publication of its digital advertising market study, um, the problems are still still exist. They're still there. And, and the longer the delay, the longer the harm there is to consumers. Um, and it's something the CMA, it's a bet that the CMA made, I guess, back in 2020. I think it's fair to say it expected that at this point in time, the DMU would be up and running and all of those concerns would be, uh, it would be able to tackle those concerns via the digital markets unit. Unfortunately, you know, that that just hasn't happened. Um, so it now is increasingly uh, looking like the CMA made the wrong call back in 2020 when it decided not to open a market investigation. Um, so the CMA does have existing powers that enable it to look at these um, digital companies and tackle some of the concerns it identified back in 2020. But these powers, and it's this, its chief executive, Andrew Cicelli, has been really vocal about this. They don't think they're the best powers to do this. They don't think that they're really up to scratch when just tackling these kind of companies. Um, it has a tool called a market investigation, which usually follows the market study that it did before, where it can essentially start a whole new investigation looking into these companies and impose remedies on them. Um, the problem with, with that existing power is that it currently takes about 18 months for a market investigation to run. Um, and the CMA is of the view that because of these kind of markets that it's tackling, they're so fast moving, the remedy, if it was to do that route and it imposed remedies in, say, three months' time, four months' time, those remedies might be out of date and then it would have to do it all over again. So it's it's always, it, it is of the view, and I think a lot of people are of the view, that the Digital Markets Unit would be the best way to tackle these problems. But it's just a shame that nothing has happened since. So it's now looking like, well, DMU is not coming in time, the CMA is not open to market investigation nothing is happening. Yes. So the, the outcome is not desirable. And so that amounts to a certain level of uncertainty facing the CMA in terms of its future prospects with digital platforms, but that's not getting in the way of private legal action against the platforms. Maybe tell me. Yeah. So while the CMA has um, essentially taken this approach of, you know, let's wait and see, um, private individuals have sort of taken action into their own hands or taken matters in their own hands via the UK's um, competition tribunal, um, the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Um, and there have been a number of class actions um, filed against uh, tech companies over their um, anti-competitive or alleged anti-competitive com- conduct. Um, so Apple, for example, is um, facing a, a claim, a, a class action claim over its, um, its uh, the fees that it charges on its app store. 
um, there is uh, some concern. It's alleged that they, uh, the commission that it imposes on um, purchases and those that provide third-party apps is in breach of its competition rules and has resulted in overcharging. Um, similarly, Google is facing a collective action suit over its um, Play Store charges as well. And most recently, Meta is facing um, a class action over its social media terms of use. So lots of lots of individuals that are, you know, not happy with you know what they view as a lack of anything really happening um, in the last two years have just you know resorted to yeah to to going direct to the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which of course presents a potential um, sticking point for the CMA if those decisions. It's unlikely, but if they do come before any action happens uh, on the legislative side of things. Yes, indeed. So the Digital Markets Unit, if it is to succeed, assuming, of course, that it is established, it's going to need uh, powers. That means it's going to need legislation. That's up to the government and to parliament, ultimately. So what is the UK government's current view on how best to tackle digital platforms? Yeah, so the UK government has been very, I, I would say, it's fair to say, not massively clear on sort of where it stands with everything. Um, the line that has been continually sort of fed is that they're working on this, uh, they're going to legislate as soon as parliamentary time allows, um, no sort of set date um, as to when that will happen. Um, interestingly enough, last week at a session, um, at the UK Parliament House of Lords Communications Committee, um, an MP was actually questioned about sort of the progress on the bill, and he made a comment that you know the CMA didn't have to it didn't have to be one or the other. The CMA could have used its existing powers to start a market investigation while waiting for the DMU to be given its powers to legislate as well. Um, so it, it, going by that, it seems to be that their view is that you know. The legislation will come when it comes, and in the meantime, the CMA shouldn't sort of be be waiting waiting around. Um, but there is there is a hope that um, when the Queen's speech comes this year, um, the DMU will be mentioned, um, so it'll be clear that that's a bill that will be on the agenda, and hopefully, hopefully, legislation will will arrive uh, sooner rather than later. And for non-UK listeners, uh, the Queen's speech is where the government gets to um, outline its policy priorities for the year. Now, uh, Victoria, what uh, are the wider implications of the legislation arriving too late? Yeah, so the the wider implications of sort of this ongoing delay is is really just that the UK risks um, running behind as other jurisdictions and countries move forward with their own proposals, because this is something that's happening on a global scale, a move to sort of um, better regulate these tech companies. Uh, The UK risks, you know, running behind and becoming a rule taker rather than a rule maker, um, which I think, you know, for people who've been following this debate is is a bit of a shame because right from the outset the UK was a leader in this debate. Um, it's been talking about this back in 2019. It's done countless reviews, the Furman Review, which sort of proposed a number of things, put this on the agenda. Uh, it's, you know, made a lot of um, 
sort of interesting uh, contributions to the space and about how sort of competition authorities look at these um, these markets, uh, like, for example, like being less fe- fearful of uncertainty and, um, you know, looking at uh, dynamic counterfactuals. Um, so, yeah, so so the wider implication is that, you know, the, the CMA and the UK runs behind. The EU, I think, is progressing considerably in its in actually the legislation it needs to get its own uh, gatekeepers law the digital markets act um out and i think that that's they're hoping that you know the fight that can be wrapped up by yeah by this year by the first half of this year and other jurisdictions are also pulling forward so so yeah the big wider implication for the uk is that you know it loses all of the momentum that it had initially um, in this area and um, it's forced to kind of adapt to what everyone else is doing because it's just so far behind. Victoria, thank you so much for keeping us up to speed. It's been great fun talking to you. Thanks. Really good to speak to you too. Victoria Ibitoye, an MNEX senior correspondent, speaking to us from London from where she covers mergers and antitrust. And her analysis of the big tech enforcement predicament in the UK is out from behind the paywall and ready for you to read. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best and the very latest of our reporting and analysis. And our loyal subscribers have access to the full portfolio of coverage of both ad tech regulation in the UK and also the establishment of the Digital Markets Unit. And our coverage goes back to August 2018, so there's no shortage of weekend reading for you there. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment. James Paniki with you. Thank you for your company. And need I remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. We land in your feed every Friday. Now, the collapse of Australia's high-profile criminal cartel prosecution of Citigroup and Deutsche Bank and the earlier collapse of the related case against the Australian New Zealand Banking Group, or ANZ, has been a remarkable setback for Australia's competition regulator – But even more importantly, the fact that this prosecution won't go to trial means that we might never find out whether communication among underwriters during an institutional share placement comes under the purview of competition law. It has been a long three and a half years for Laurel Henning, our Sydney-based senior reporter, who joins us now. Um, Laurel, let's first try to set the scene for this prosecution for our listeners. Uh, You've been covering it so diligently uh, for the past three and whatever years. Uh, What do we need to know exactly? Absolutely, James. This was actually one of the first cases, in fact, the first case that I went to local court for after I'd moved to Australia in 2018. And it all centres around a 2015 ANZ share placement, which uh, is worth two and a half billion Australian dollars. Now, ANZ, one of the four major Australian banks, had employed Citigroup and Deutsche Bank as their underwriters. And it was the three banks, as well as six individuals associated with the share placement, that were actually facing these criminal cartel charges, which related to three different alleged agreements over how that share placement was handled over a specific weekend in August of 2015. I should say as well that JP Morgan was also employed as an underwriter, but JP Morgan ended up being the immunity witness 
in this case. Um, And from the get-go in 2018, there were factual disputes in this case. I was looking at my first story this week that I wrote in October of 2018, just a few months after the charges were laid back in June of that year. And lawyers at that point were already arguing over the statement of facts relating to the case, the lack of clarity over the charges that their clients were facing. And this was a sign of something that was going to continue for years to come before the local court. Okay, so when did you see signs of the case beginning to unravel or or at least when did you sense that the prosecution was facing some stumbling blocks? Well, I think the fact that the case stayed before the local court for more than two years is an indication of just how hard these defence teams were arguing all of the details relating to this case. Obviously, they were incredibly well-resourced accused in this in this case, so they could make all of those detailed arguments. But Tim Game, um, who was a barrister in the case, and he represented ANZ and the prosecution before charges against the bank were, were dropped much prior to the rest of the case collapsing, he often said, this is going to be a miscarriage of justice if this makes it to federal court or even a jury. And often this went back to... Uh, the argument that the defence teams, again, as I've said, they just weren't clear on what the prosecution's case was. Sometimes it was about access to documents that um, there was one disclosure argument that went from sort of 2018 even through to just last year before the federal court. There were some big procedural issues here, but really I think a major turning point in this case was when Former ACCC investigator Michael Taylor took to the witness box um, in the local court. It was around the time of the Australian bushfires in late 2019. Things really started taking a turn around that around that time. Yes, well, tell me something about Michael Taylor's evidence. A former policeman brought in to uh, take charge of the criminal investigations, which were a new thing for the ACCC. Uh, based on your reporting, it did in fact become quite colourful, didn't it? Yeah, that's true. This team was a really new part of the ACCC. And actually, there was a real lack of experience in terms of criminal investigation and the process of a criminal investigation within that new criminal cartel unit. So Michael Taylor brought in former policemen. But what became apparent during uh, his his cross-examination was that not only had he destroyed all of his personal notebooks from the time that he was an investigator on this case, but he hadn't even made it seemed, any uh, detailed notes in his ACCC investigation notebook, which is this official notebook that um, investigators then have to put in a special room within the regulator regulator's building, um, and then everything is sort of kept and filed away for these investigations. But also, we were hearing for the first time, when Michael Taylor was being examined, was also at a point when we were hearing for the first time from the immunity witnesses, the individuals who had worked at this point for JP. Morgan. One of those was uh, a man called Jeffrey Herbert Smith, and he talked about disagreements he had had with ACCC officials while his witness statement was being taken, and crucial changes that had been made to his statement, obviously a statement that he ended up signing off on, but there were some real interesting discussions that came to light. So for example, he was detailing a conversation he had he had, had with ACCC, um, a member of the ACCC's enforcement department, Jane Lynn, in which he had said, there was no agreement between City, Deutsch and JP Morgan. And she had said that she found it difficult to believe that three people could come to a decision like that. He had then added that perhaps his disagreement with Lynn in his interpretation that the banks reached three separate decisions that were the same rather than an agreement on their action probably could have come down to the fact that 
He's obviously very familiar with capital markets. She isn't. Now, as I said, he signed up to that statement, but the defence team started to really question the witness statement gathering processes within the ACCC at this point, a process that, incidentally, has actually changed since this case began. Now, as you said, uh, this case began in a local court in Sydney, then moved to a federal court. Did the prosecution's approach change or evolved when that uh, move occurred? Well, I think, first of all, we should talk a bit about um, the reaction to the case that Federal Court of Australia Judge Michael Wigney had when it arrived before him. Now, he's a judge who's handled some of the other criminal cartel cases. He oversaw the shipping cartel from a few years ago. So he's really, he and I would say Justice Bromwich, who oversaw the country care case that we reported on last year, have really placed themselves as these central figures in the court for these criminal cartel cases. I expect we'll be seeing more from them. But to come back to his reaction, when the case came before him, he was really um, expressing a sort of, okay, I'm going to have a no-nonsense approach to this case. You're not going to be able to drag this out the way I've seen in the local court. It's unacceptable how long it's already spent there. And he's desperately been trying to keep it on track for what would have been a jury trial for this year. Famously for us, in one of his uh, judgments last year, he did refer to the indictment process as a complete schmozzle. Yes, I, I remember that well, yes. Now, we, that's because we had seen multiple indictments from the federal prosecutor filed before um, Whitney. We saw charges dropped against ANZ and two individuals, leaving Just City, Deutsche and four executives associated with them. And then the charges that were left only related to one of the three alleged agreements that had been alleged right at the start of the case. Now, when he gave the prosecutor that one more chance at the end of last year, largely, I would say, and and in fact, this was in his reasons on public interest grounds, he said that while the charges were exceptionally complex and he, he acknowledged the difficulties for the prosecutor, he said that's no consolation to the individuals linked to the case and the drawn out proceedings that they'd faced at this point. You know, their lives have been on hold since 2018. So what changed between November and last week when the prosecutor dropped the charges? In conversations I've had with uh, lawyers involved with the case since those charges were dropped, we've discussed some of the key hearings that took place in November and December of last year. We had the re-examination of key witnesses, including Jeffrey Herbert Smith, who I mentioned earlier, including Michael Taylor as well, that we've also discussed. And this highlighted some key comments regarding whether the underwriters had ever been in competition with one another. Comments that actually hadn't ended up in the final version of statements, again, that witnesses willingly signed up to, but the fact that these conversations had happened with the ACCC where senior executives of JP Morgan had said quite explicitly they weren't in competition with one another, and then that didn't end up in the final um, version of evidence before the court. Then we were meant to have these demurrer hearings, which was where defence teams were going to question the legal basis for the case. That was what was meant to be starting last Friday when the charges were dropped. So what we were going to see there were questions raised over whether the federal prosecutor could in fact argue that shares were services because for criminal cartel laws to apply they have to apply to goods or services and defense teams were going to argue that shares aren't services they're obviously not goods and they're not services either they were also going to talk about um, competition in open capital markets and whether you could even argue a restriction of supply case now the unfortunate thing is we won't 
probably ever hear those questions answered before a court now because a case like this is almost certainly not going to come before the courts again in any future criminal cartel prosecution. Moving forward, we should probably be keeping in mind that we're in an election year in Australia and we're about to see some new leadership at the top of the ACCC. So this could mean some changes to criminal cartel laws and that's something that's already coming up in in local media. We've seen some op-eds from lawyers that had worked on this case that are sort of pushing for that already. Yes, indeed. And and the ACCC has emerged from this prosecution with its reputation somewhat tarnished, although I'm sure that ACCC Chairman Rod Sims would object to that uh, description. But uh, the antitrust regulator has announced that it will review what went wrong, right? Yes. In a hearing uh, before the Australian Senate this week, uh, Rod Sims said that he would be reviewing the lessons learned in this process. Now, what those lessons are, we just don't know yet. And he had appointed the agency's chief operating officer, Scott Gregson, to investigate what went wrong. Now, Gregson wasn't involved in the cartel investigation, and Sims has vowed that the other officials working on the review also won't have had any connection to the cartel probe that led to this criminal criminal case. But that wasn't quite enough for government senator Paul Scar, who appeared to be calling for the appointment of an outside expert to review the case. Um, it's quite a difficult hearing for Sims. He um, is his last, in fact, as he will leave the ACCC at the end of March. Um, he also had to defend himself from the suggestion that his statement, the, the media release that the ACCC put out following the collapse of the prosecution, appeared not to really appreciate or recognise the fact that the individuals who had been charged um, had suffered greatly, both per- personally and professionally, and that they should be offered the presumption of innocence given that they will never face a jury. And here's what Rod Sims had to say yesterday, so Thursday of this week, about that, when pressed by government Senator Scar. I understand. Look, these, these cases, whether they're criminal sometimes or civil, they're, they're very difficult. And there's no doubt that this case went on for too long. I think we have to, you know, we had two years in the magistrate's court, which you'd have to question what that achieved. I think there's an issue there. But look, certainly there will be lessons to be learned. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the press about... Perhaps it should have been taken civilly, not criminally. Uh, We need to reflect on that. So, look, yes, the the case is over and those people can get on with their lives, Senator, and they should, as you say, um, uh, the case did not proceed. So uh, that should be absolutely what happens. But we need to sit with the CDPP and get as many lessons out of this as we can, and we most certainly will. And that was ACCC Chairman Rod Sims addressing a committee hearing in the Australian Senate on Thursday of this week. Laurel, it has been great talking to you about uh, this case over the years. It is indeed a shame that so many questions will be left unanswered, but no doubt a relief to those who had been facing uh, criminal charges. And it may give you a chance to get your life back as well. So (laughs) thank you very, very much indeed. Thanks, James. Laurel Henning is MX's Sydney-based senior reporter and she's been covering this prosecution from the very beginning. We will post her most recent analysis of this case along with her work on Australia's entire criminal cartel enforcement campaign at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com, mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the drama of the Citigroup Deutsche Bank prosecution. Now, could that possibly be the time? Yes, it is. So we'd better get out of your hair as quickly as possible with the promise to be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I hope to see you again very soon. Bye for now. Listener.